Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 3, Side 1. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. Hello, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'll be one of your hosts this evening for the Gist of Freedom, brought to you by Leslie Gist. We're coming to you over www.blogtalkradio.com slash blackhistory. Joining me later will be the ambassador of poetry, Ty Gray L., in addition to genealogist Stephanie Gilbert. Tonight we're continuing our review of the 1969 book, Black Abolitionists, by Benjamin Quarles. Be finishing up with Chapter 4, going into Chapter 5. The uh, Users of Adversity. Also with me right now is Stephanie Gilbert. Are you there, Stephanie? I am here. Hello, Preston. How are you doing tonight? You got a few words for us? Well, I'm just happy to be on the show again, and I'm very excited to speak about the topic tonight. Uh, Why don't you share with our audience something about your ancestor, Shadrach Minkins? Okay, so Shadrach is not my ancestor. My ancestor is Oliver Cromwell Gilbert, who was also known as O.C. Gilbert. And that's okay. Do you want me to continue? Yes, please. Okay. So um, Oliver was a was enslaved in Maryland uh, in the from he was born in 1832 and he was enslaved in Howard County, Maryland until 1848 when he escaped via some assistance, which we believe is the underground through the Underground Railroad. There was an agent placed or positioned down in his area who gave him and several other slaves directions on how to escape, where to go, what route to follow, and how to cross into Pennsylvania. And so they were very successful in escaping together in August of 1848. They made their way through Maryland and crossed the Susquehanna into uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and the first abolitionist that they encountered, um, uh, Betty Stevens, assisted them into uh, hiding in Lancaster County. Eventually, after probably a year and a half, uh, Oliver made his way to Boston by way of New York and wound up being greatly welcomed by the abolitionists in Boston who then supported him in finding work and learning to read and write. And Oliver, uh, in later in his life, sat down with encouragement from a number of um, former abolitionists and people who were active in the community at the time 
they encouraged him to sit down and write his story. And so he did. He wrote a 52-page handwritten narrative of his life in slavery and his escape and how he was helped and eventually what happened um, later in life and how he made his way through freedom to success. And that narrative was left for our family to keep and understand, which I now have a copy of. So I am most interested in your subject tonight because several pages in Oliver's narrative focus on his time in Boston and most notably for tonight's topic, focus on what he witnessed in the Shadrach Minkins uh, arrest and rescue. Okay, so who was Mr. Minkins? Shadrach Minkins was a slave, a fugitive slave, who escaped um, uh, from Norfolk, Virginia, where he had been enslaved. He was born around 1814, I believe. And he escaped and eventually made his way to Boston and arrived in Boston in the 1850 time frame. So he hadn't been there that long. And just about the time that he arrived, unfortunately for him, Congress had just recently passed the Fugitive Slave Act. And the Fugitive Slave Act, which was passed in September of 1850, essentially said that the law was now empowering slave owners or their agents to seize runaway slaves, backed up simply by nothing other than their own testimony. So essentially, if you were a slave owner or a slave catcher, which is probably more often the case in the North, you could essentially grab any person of African descent, be they free or fugitive slave, you really didn't know, but you could grab anyone and testify that, yes, they were a fugitive slave and you were empowered to catch them, and that was all it took for you to have the right and license to carry them back to the South and back to slavery. Okay, and you said... And, your, go ahead. You said your ancestor... Um, had written that down in his 52-page document? He wrote down uh, the ramifications that he felt personally from the Fugitive Slave Act, and he wrote about the arrest of Shadrach Minkins and what actions he took following that to protect himself. Okay. We're going to continue with uh, Chapter 4. And uh, Ty Gray L., are you there? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Okay, to have you tonight. Glad you could join us. And uh, happy to be happy to I'm be here, and happy to happy to meet you too, Stephanie. Likewise, it's good to hear your voice. Yeah, I'm, I'm always honored when I hear uh, about um, the descendants of uh, ancestors who, as a matter of fact, I literally lived in Howard County, and I went to I actually performed some poetry at one of the underground depots, and I'm I'm sorry to say I can't remember the name of the particular depot, but it was right outside of Columbia, Maryland, 
um, and uh, with today's Columbia, Maryland. So I'm Great. I'm just happy to meet you. Likewise, and it sounds like we'll have to connect after the show. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So well, I was going to get. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm sorry. You you were going to get back to the narrative, and then and I mean to the to the book, and then we were going to do some comments afterwards. Yes, and perhaps uh, Stephanie can read uh, from some of the narrative of her ancestor. I have the narrative in front of me, and I'd be happy to read read the, his exact uh, words. Great. So I think we're ready to queue up Chapter 4. Okay. Uh, can you read a piece of that right now, Stephanie? Absolutely. So we start with... Oliver, and apparently at this point he's in New York, okay? And so he says, The abolitionists decided that it was not safe for me to remain any longer in New York. So brother and I, and his brother was with him at this point, were sent that night by way of Brooklyn and Greenport, New London and Providence, to Boston, number two Beach Street, Excuse me, Stephanie, do you, have a, do you have a radio on or? No, I don't, but I am hearing some feedback. We'll get some feedback from somebody. Um, okay, could you start that from the top again? I'll start again, sure. Clear. It sounds like it may have stopped. The abolitionists decided that it was not safe for me to remain any longer in New York, so Brother and I were sent that night by way of Brooklyn and Greenport, New London and Providence, to Boston, to number two, Beach Street, to an abolitionist by the name of Timothy Gilbert. And by the way, Timothy Gilbert has no connection to the family name. It's just coincidental. A piano manufacturer and the deacon of the Tremont Temple. He received us kindly and introduced us to other friends of the slaves. There I met William Lloyd Garrison, Wendell Phillips, Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Francis Jackson, Charles Sumner, Samuel J. May, Jr., Stephen Foster, Abby Kelly, and his wife, Lucy Stone, Mrs. Wendell Phillips, who gave me a hearty welcome to Boston. Such a reception we had never dreamed of. Here we were in the great city of Boston with no money or learning, all strangers. Mr. Gilbert, the deacon, gave me work. Here I learned to read and write with the help of his family. After my day's work was done, his wife and some others would explain to me my lessons. I never went to school five days to learn anything. We soon found lots of friends in Boston. After leaving Timothy Gilbert, we worked for Garrison and such men as Theodore Parker, Wendell Phillips. I have slept in Phillips' house a good many nights at 26 Essex Street in the company with the late William C. Nell. I had to get the best I could among strangers. William Bowditch was another great friend to the poor slave. I took care of his office at number 8 Court Square. He and Mr. Goldsbury were law partners. On February 15, 1851, he left me to take care of his office while he went to lunch. He gave me some orders to be attended to. When he returned, I was sitting looking out of the window. It was snowing and raining. I saw two white men walking with each of them by their side, a colored man. They were U.S. Marshals. They had arrested a waiter 
in the Cornhill Coffee House, known by the name of Shadrick from Norfolk, Virginia. They took him up into the United States Courthouse. I watched for a moment from the lawyer Bowditch's office, and I went immediately and ascertained what the trouble was. I found, I found out and I ran all the way up to the colored settlement on Southwick Street, now known as Phillips Street, and I gave the alarm. It was about noon or maybe a little later, and soon all of Southwick Street, men and women, were following me down to the courthouse. When we arrived, Shadrick was locked and guarded by Pat Riley, the marshal and his assistant. He informed the crowd that it was of no use to hang around, for it would do us no good. We could not see Shadrick until Tuesday. Still the crowd stood around. By and by, Charles G. Davis, one of his counsels, came out to go downstairs. A number of the colored people caught hold of the door and pulled it and took Shadrick out of the courthouse. Amid great excitement, we ran him off to Canada. Before sending him, we ran him to the west to the West End and changed his attire to that of a woman. It caused a great furor throughout the U.S., but we landed the fugitive beyond the reaches of the two-legged bloodhounds. Man, quite an experience. Uh, Absolutely. It's mercy. And he met all the heavyweights there in the uh, abolitionist movement. Um, they 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 were all there together and doing fantastic things. Exactly. Uh, it's very interesting, very interesting what our ancestors went through for us to be here at this particular point. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Are you there, Stephanie? I am here, and I feel the same. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's just, it's just amazing um, um, how much ground we've covered. Um, it, it was just so many things that uh, that stand out in in all of that uh, dialogue. One of the things, well, several things, but um, um, one was how important the African American church was, and and the different positions that they held depending upon their denominations, and 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 how the white church. Responded to to abolitionists. Uh, as a matter of fact, they had. I, I, I wrote down that there was an, a distinction between uh, what they called an emancipationist and an abolitionist. And oh my goodness! Well, I have to say, Ty, it's interesting that you wrote that down because I didn't write down much, but I did probably make four important points that I took away, and one was that exact same thing, that the Cincinnati Committee, um, the Cincinnati Conference, um, actually it was, no, it was the African Methodist Episcopal Church decided Mm -hmm. to use emancipationists as opposed to abolitionists in order to make the term more palatable. And I was surprised that they took such a... You know, such a, such a stance rather than simply calling it as it was. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that that was one point that stuck out to me. There's so many. I, you know, one thing going back a little prior to that was the 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 juxtaposition 
I get or, or the similarities between um, how we responded to our own kind with respect to products and services and the way we do today. I mean, um, uh, slave labor products were a huge issue, and mm-hmm. how how we how we bought and sold from each other, and 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 how even today it's 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 rec- the same sort of thing is recognizable if you're not if you don't have the the white sanctioning or the, the European sanctioning your 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 products then you know they really don't sell so as a matter of fact I was listening to WHO I'm I'm a native Washingtonian I live in the right in the Washington metropolitan area and Howard University's radio show tonight as I was riding in to come get on this show had that very same topic on how black people don't support black businesses and we saw the same thing transpired back in the 1830s so mm-hmm. it, it, it's just several several points that um well, I also, you know, as in conducting my research, one thing that I have noticed and it stood out for me on this call on the uh, the show tonight was that in conducting my newspaper research, which I often have to do as a genealogist and historian is go through old historic newspapers looking for connections and information, and I did come across recently a series of newspaper advertisements in the Pennsylvania area, most notably Philadelphia, for stores that were labeled as free. So whether it was Mm. free produce or free products, and it took me a little research to figure out what that meant. And it was, of course, products or services that had come through free labor and not slavery. And so I realized that that became a big thing at the time, um, especially in Philadelphia, to support stores and businesses that were selling goods and services produced from free labor. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's, it's interesting because, you know, we, we, we're taking – Whenever you're studying, and I'm sure you know, as as a, as a student, uh, you you know you take this into consideration like we all do. You have to consider the writer and the writer's perspective. And what what is glaring here to me is that that he 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 made it clear that there were some folk, some a lot of black folk who. Uh, didn't make it didn't make any difference whether it was free or not they did they weren't uh, they weren't that uh uh conscious of it or not maybe conscious is not the right word they they weren't that uh moved uh to mm-hmm. support their own as as others were and 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 it, what what's really interesting to me is you know I had a friend of mine who um who he has a position he will he will drive 15 to 20 miles out of the way to go to a black cleaners today and his wife in the same household refuses to do that and so she'll take it across the street to the to the Koreans and it's just interesting how some of the same mindset from way back then in the 1830s we we have right today in in, in 2013, um, uh-huh. 
one of the other things that stuck out to me was um, how um, the, the difference in the treatment of black people who had already been enslaved than ones who had recently been enslaved in, in the case of the Mendes when they um, uh, when um, when he was talking about Senke and how up in Massachusetts how they um, when that that whole thing around the Amistad Commission right do you remember that part well yeah it's absolutely yeah it's interesting that they that those people fought for those people who who they knew had been um, enslaved wrongly and captured but they but the folk who were just just south of of the border as a matter of fact some even in Massachusetts as far as Salem Massachusetts right there in Salem the white churches wouldn't even defend uh those people who had been formerly enslaved so it's just it's just uh, it's just very very interesting yeah, I don't really know what to make of that. I did know, you know, back on to your comment about support, um, I made a note about the one thing that we heard was that in Philadelphia, you know, William Still commented that in 1858 there were 30,000 blacks living in the city of Philadelphia and only 400 of them supported the abolitionist newspapers. Wow. And I thought that was extremely telling. Yes, 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 yes. Extremely. It is. It's amazing. Um, uh, what another thing that was amazing to me is the the role that the church has played with respect to slavery. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of hard for us to to deal with because, well, hard for me to deal with. And and the reason why I say that is because. You know, it's it's just it's just it's difficult because, for instance, the the point was made that the American Missionary Association, which was uh, a a black organization, how they uh, immediately became missionaries with respect to the, those folk who had been captured on the Amistad and wanted to go back and and convert folk and, and change them from their their so-called savage ways. And, 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 and have you seen the movie Amistad? Have you um, seen that film? I'm sorry, which film? The film Amistad. Yes, I did see that well, several years well, ago. Yeah, well, the point that I, I was making is how they, that they immediately wanted to change those folk and started programs to, to, when they were sending them back to Africa that they would, you know, send missionaries over to do conversions and, um, and, and, and change them into Christians. And, and uh, it's just a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of psychological uh, warfare, really, if, if you use that terminology, a lot of psychological warfare with respect to black people in America and their mindsets. And it's interesting, we, we went over in a couple of chapters before uh, you know how um, religion was used to uh, control, and we, we, you know we see the same thing that was going on. And then there, another point that was made. What do you think of this? That um, I, I made a point that some black missionaries actually 
they had salaries of two two hundred dollar annual salaries as as missionaries to go around and uh and persuade folk i guess to to become um, more what was emancipationist rather than abolitionist right right and so right, that's, yeah. that's, that's it's interesting that it was sort of a like a dumbing down or 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 a, that might not be the right phrase but kind of watering down watering down the the the, the call the, or the, the the clarion call for freedom so you you don't need to make this much noise just you know just make it a little mm-hmm. i don't I, I don't know I'm mm-hmm. kind of yeah, frustrated Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, the piece is about the, um, I thought, you know, going back to your earlier comment, the piece is about the churches I found extremely interesting, especially given that many of those churches today are still in existence and, um, you know, very vibrant in their community engagement and parishionership. And in Philadelphia, of course, you know, as in D.C., I'm sure, we have a number of very historic churches that were discussed uh, in, in during you know our listening to the book. Most notably, um, the St. Thomas um, Church, which was interestingly enough, that was the church that my great great grandfather escaped slavery. His son became the choir master and organist at that church. And so, you know, I have to go back and re-listen to that piece that was played um, about um, that particular church that we just heard. And also the, um, there was another church, I think it was a church in Harrisburg, where um, the services, I think, on Sundays were turned over to William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass in 1847. I thought that was interesting because I, I did not realize that Garrison um, and Frederick Douglass were active in Harrisburg. And the more I researched and studied, the more I realized that there was a, a very active and vibrant abolitionist community at work in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania uh, at the time. Um, and also Salem, Massachusetts, having no place to host an abolitionist meeting, which surprised me because when I think of, of course, Boston, I think of that as being a hotbed of abolition, but yet Salem being so close, um, you know, there was there was no place to even do so much as hold a meeting, let alone conduct some, you know, vibrant abolitionist activities. So, you know, all of these things are the pieces that we put together to get the get the picture that things were not um certainly not easy. You think of the North being free and supportive and the South being slave states and, you know, supportive of the Confederacy, but clearly Things in the north were not as easy as many would assume it yeah, was. And that, here. That, that myth, that myth really needs to be exposed. Uh, it's just as Malcolm said, you know, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. And when you think, when you think also that the very first commodity ever traded on Wall Street in New York City, way up north. Uh, well, not way up north, but you know, north north enough. Um, the very first commodity ever traded was, you know, uh, enslaved black people. And with that being said, I want to uh, reintroduce Preston Washington to bring him back on board. Are you there, Preston? Oh, 
I'm, I'm sorry. I got it. I, I thought that in the chat room said that Preston was was back on. But um, one of the things that you said earlier on, in, in, in line with all this, it really is fascinating to me, uh, Stephanie, is that um, it, now. So now Oliver Gilbert was your what again? He was what my was great great grandfather. He was so my great great. Yeah, he was my grandfather's grandfather. Mm-hmm. So he was the actual catalyst. He 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 uh, he was the one who actually was the impetus for Shadrach uh, being freed, uh, according to what you said. That to me, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Been. I'm sure there were a number. You know, I'm sure there were a number of people that witnessed that. My understanding of that event from other research is that you know they attempted to the marshals had a warrant that was uh, issued, I believe, the day before. And they knew that the free black community in Boston on North Slope of Beacon Hill was extremely active. And any attempt to arrest anyone in Boston was going to be met with the utmost uh, vigilance. So they expected a riot. So under cover the day before, the marshals secured their warrant for Shadrick's arrest, and they went to the coffee house. And, and by the way, Shadrick was also living at the coffee house, so it wasn't just working there. He was boarding there. And they went to the coffee house at 8 a.m., thinking that before everyone was up and about in Boston, before people had their wits about them, they would go in and sit down and order a cup of coffee. There was supposed to be someone who was local who would show up and identify Shadrick for them, and then they would take him under arrest and swoop him over to the courthouse, which was, you know, just a block or so away. Unfortunately for them, the person, the local person who was supposed to identify Shadrick didn't show up. And so at about 1130, I mean, these guys are sitting in the coffee house, and Shadrick is the waiter, and he's serving them coffee. And he doesn't realize, (laughs) he doesn't realize that they are marshals there to arrest him. And so at about 11.30, they finally get um, someone to identify. I'm sorry, they don't. They they get someone to identify Shadrick, but Shadrick walks out. He's either going on a break or he's done for the day or whatever. He goes outside. And there are marshals outside who thought that this was a signal to arrest Shadrick. Now, Shadrick was not supposed to be arrested in public because everybody knew that that would start a riot in Boston. But lo and behold, Shadrick walks outside and the marshals outside think, oh, we are supposed to now grab him because he's out here. And so they do. And this is witnessed. It, it is now 11, 30, 12 o'clock. It is, you know, high noon in Boston. Everybody's on the street. Not only are they working, but it's lunchtime, so they're outside. And um, the witnesses, you know, I'm sure there were multiple witnesses, Oliver being one, um, made their way to Southwick Street on the North Slope, which is where the free black community was living in mass, as well as all of the fugitive slaves and the abolitionists. And, well, let me uh, ask you this question. It went I, from I, there. I don't, know, I don't know if your research has gone this far into it, but I'm just curious. What, what, would, what had Shadrach done? That warranted so many marshals. Had he done something specific, or 
Was he no, no, not that I. No, 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 not that I know of. I mean, my understanding is that now it may be that his, you know, these marshals were acting on behalf of Shadrach's slave master who wanted him back. So oh, okay. it could have been that Shadrach was just a very valuable slave. You know, at the time right. he probably would have been about 25 years old. So he was young. He was, you know, probably, you know, just very valuable as a slave. And, we, you know, I don't know the details about his slave master or how wealthy he may have been, but, um, you know, Norfolk, you know, I'm thinking yeah. tobacco maybe. Yeah. Um, so so right. yeah. it could have just been that, right, his, maybe his master was well-connected. I don't have any yeah. indication that Shadrach had necessarily done anything that made people want to yeah. arrest him. Yeah, it could have been a prestige issue. His slave master was ashamed that how dare you, I, I'm not going to let you escape from it. It could have been any number of, of things. It's any not, number I'm, of things. I'm, I'm but keep in mind I'm, also, keep in mind also that the Fugitive Slave Law had also just recently been passed. So it wasn't only that they wanted Chadrick, but it was that they had this new law behind yeah. them, which really changed the whole scope of you know, um, the slave catchers. And, you know, now these guys had free, whereas before, yes, there were always slave catchers. Yes, they were always, you know, sort of bounty hunters and they were doing their thing, but they didn't have the law behind them necessarily. And now they had this law that essentially yeah. said, you you know, if it, not only do you have to go and catch these slaves, but if anybody gets in your way or tries mm. to stop you, they are subject to fine and imprisonment. So now they had these barriers removed. It was sort of free reign for them yeah. in the north, yeah. and that was wow. new. Yeah. So, Preston, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, in terms of Shadrach, uh, he may have had some specialty uh, in terms of his skill, um, and awfully often the slaves that had skills were very valuable to the owners because they could form them out uh, for That's wages right. to various other slaveholders. So he probably had some value, uh, economic value, that the uh, owner was willing, unwilling uh, to let go of. Um, yeah. Just wanted to talk about a note that I had that's kind of similar to what you guys have been talking about. And that was the temperance movement, uh, the involvement of the temperance movement trying to associate, or the abolitionists trying to associate with the temperance movement, uh, which was largely a white movement. Black folks were probably more temperate than a lot of the white folks they were trying to join, but they ran up against uh, a lot of uh, prejudice uh, in trying to get with those groups, uh, the temperance groups, and that kind of stood out for me as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, along with what you guys were talking about in terms of the self-help groups, one thing I was concerned about was this uh, free produce. Uh, I thought that was uh, a unique take on that, Stephanie, about the products were made by free labor. But I'm wondering about the products that they use to make products, such as clothes and whatnot. A lot of those clothes, uh, being cotton, uh, was still coming out of the slave-producing uh, part of the Oh, United. sure. Absolutely. There was um, 
you know, slavery was, the slave owners were still making money off of those free products um, relative to... Uh, yeah, there's someone in the chat room just said that um, that silk was was in competition back then, and uh, Patterson, uh, Patterson, New Jersey, being Silk City, and uh, so factories. Yes, in in how how the factories uh, um, played an important in part in in in, in all of that. Um, it's interesting. You know, there's so many things that I, I think about today that are, that are happening in the 21st, things that are happening in the 21st century that, you know, happened way back then that just is similar. Because when, when it started off talking about this this, this labor um, and um, the, the manner in which the, the labor, you know, you know, the way people were paid and, and and how the labor was, uh, and I'm thinking about how right today in the 21st century, you have um, uh, a, a form of slavery going on where you have people in there making all kinds of products, uh, and um, they're not free products. They're products that are actually made by people who are, for all intents and purposes, slaves. They're working for 20 cents, 30 cents an hour. And they are manufacturing all of these products. So it's just interesting how, uh, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Are you talking about the um, the products being made by prisoners? Yes. The United States today? Yes. Uh, that are working for probably 30 cents a day. If that yes. much, they're taking yes. over. One other thing I wanted to point out, when he talked about Mary Chad, Carrie, and uh, he didn't go into it, but she was one of the first known black women to edit a newspaper and uh, here in North America. And her family uh, immigrated to Canada about 1852, and that was due to the, uh, again, the uh, Fugitive Slave Law or Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And I uh, thought that was interesting which has kind of had me going to do some more research on this Chad. Seems she was pretty prominent in immigration uh, from North America to Canada, or the United States to Canada. Um, yeah, yeah. It's very, it was a lot of uh, really great information. I find that you have to kind of listen to this, you know, more than once to absorb, because it was a great deal of information about the newspapers. Um, but there's someone in the chat room that asked me to ask you, Stephanie. Um, uh, you have any comments on uh, Django? That was just nominated for Academy Award. I, I, you know what? It's funny. I wasn't going to bring up Django. I haven't seen Django. Um, okay. I'm I'm not a Quentin Tarantino fan. You, people say you either love him or hate him. I do intend yeah. to see it. I'm just waiting for um, the right person to accompany me to see it. I am interested in, in the subject matter, matter obviously. I'm not a Tarantino fan either at all, under any any circumstance. So what about Lincoln? Have you seen it? I did see Lincoln, yes, and I enjoyed I enjoyed Lincoln quite a bit. Um, there are a lot of 
the historic ones. I think it's even more enjoyable if you understand the historical references. And of course, there was a lot of um, we saw a lot of Thaddeus Stevens character in Lincoln, and Thaddeus Stevens was very very instrumental in helping Oliver escape. So I enjoyed seeing that. You know, I haven't looked at it again. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Preston. I have not seen either movie. Um, yeah. Getting more enjoyment just talking to people that have seen it and getting their uh, their varying comments uh, on the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So let me yeah. let me just ask you, um, the Fatty Stevens character. Um, could you expound a little bit on that, Stephanie? Well, um, Fatty Stevens was played by Tommy Lee Jones in Lincoln, and of course. Thaddeus oh. Stevens was was the um, you know the the uh, if you saw the movie it has an interesting ending and I don't want to give it away for people but you can see where Thaddeus Stevens was obviously a very good friend to the slaves which is what Oliver tells us about him and he had a law office in um, Lancaster Pennsylvania and he was the first abolitionist that um, Oliver and his band of fugitives came across when they crossed the Susquehanna. They thought they were in Canada, but they weren't, of course, and they they uh, fell asleep on the beach in Pennsylvania wow. and thinking that they were, yeah, they, you know, they went across that bridge singing and fell asleep and they were awakened by some friends or Quakers that directed them to Thaddeus Stevens, and then from there they were rushed off to various homes in Lancaster County. Uh, but because uh, because Oliver gave us so much detail on Thaddeus Stevens and the detail on how Thaddeus helped him and the fact that he had gone to Thaddeus's office, he was directed to Thaddeus's office for support. Um, the National Park Service recently certified. Thaddeus's office as a stop on the Underground Railroad, um, citing that Oliver's narrative was the evidence that they needed to support that. Yeah, I, I'm, so, I'm really happy about such, that. Yeah, I, I'm told that he was such an humanitarian, and he believed in equality so much that he insisted it be buried in a black cemetery. Well, I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, that's what. Well, I, that's what. I, that's what I've, uh, I've I've heard um, through through our engineer, uh, um, um, Leslie. Just um, I've learned that I've learned so much through her. Um, but that is uh, one of the things that um, uh, he defended. Uh, he also defended Minkins. Um, he also. Def- um, uh, he he was one of the the folk who was who were was an advocate for Shadrach Lincoln. Shadrach um, Lincoln. Mhm. Yes. So he. I'm, I, yeah. You know what? I have to go. You're going to make me go back and look at that film again because, to be honest, um, I his now his his character. He one of the things that you will enjoy when you do get a chance to see it, uh, Preston, is that. He he was a brilliant orator, and anybody who said anything on the floor of the house or wherever they were arguing, he just put them to shame. It, it was, it, it Absolutely. Was, it was funny how bright and quick-witted he was. So that, that but, was 
but you, but there was one piece where he compromised, and rightfully so. He compromised his position to for the for for the purpose of supporting Lincoln. I mean, do you remember that part where he was on the floor and you know they were asking him, um, you know, for his his thoughts on slavery, and he had one opinion that he had been stating throughout the film, but he knew if he stated that that the um, you know, the Nineteenth Amendment wouldn't pass, and so he compromised his position to support like what Lincoln was attempting to accomplish. Now, were you aware that he was Lincoln's um, uh, lawyer? He was he was his attorney. No, I was not aware that he was his personal attorney. That yeah, that he defended him. That that's what um, that's what I'm being told in the chat room. That um, uh, that Thaddeus defended. Did he, did he defend his position on the amendment? Uh, or did he? I don't know that he ever. You're saying that he defended him um, in legal matters, where um, Lincoln. Well, according according to what I'm reading in the chat room, um, it says, uh, ask Ms. Gilbert if she is aware that Thaddeus was Mencken's lawyer. He -hmm. also had a black lawyer by the name of Robert Morris. Um, So I guess he had two attorneys. Um, You know, I I guess there was probably a lot of wrangling going on you know, in, in the thick of it, but so I mean that's what that's what, and I, I don't know. I'd have to do some more research on it myself. But at Lincoln, you know, that the Civil War was fought to abolish slavery, and I personally don't believe that. I believe the Civil War was fought for financial purposes, right? That was yeah. for power of the North over the South. The economics. It was an economic war more than anything else, and slavery was simply, the abolishment of slavery was the vehicle to dethrone the South, oh, yeah. to disempower the South. The uh, northern industrialists were behind um, the war so they could free that labor, and hopefully that labor would move north. Right, and right. They would pay them uh, livable wages, I say quotation marks. Uh, but, yeah, that's what it was about. It was a northern industrialist who wanted yeah. to have a shift in labor, the labor force, and they were jealous of their southern business folks who were down there making all that profit and uh, not spending anything on labor. And the north exactly. didn't have to manage. We need to have. Let's let, 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 uh, kind of go into this discussion. How, what What relevance? I get this all the time, especially from young people. What relevance is all of this to to today? What 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 good is it for me to know anything about Oliver Gilbert? Well, just in my opinion, you know, from doing the research and then thinking about, but I do think about that a lot. How it applies, and I will say, I'll stop here and say, I am actually very surprised about how many African Americans in my even even in my circle really don't have a lot of interest in this. It's not a lot of interest in 
our history. People say they're interested in it, and they like to hold it up and say, well, you know, we were slaves. And we, but what does that really mean? When you say, well, we were slaves, or we come from slavery, or, you know, people claim they want reparations or whatever it is, but then they really don't have an understanding of what slavery was about and how it operated and the and the impact of it. And so I'll say that I think the the impact or why it's important to under understand it in the world today is that you can see when you start to understand the details about slavery and the impact on the black community, free and enslaved, you can overlay those details on current society and you can see the similarities. And Preston and I have talked about this before. One of the things that really interests me is the impact of slavery on black families. Enslaved black families. And I find it in Oliver's work. As I read through 52 pages of narrative, I find very little about um, his feelings for his family, very little about his brothers and sisters, although he had ten of them, very little about who they were or where they were. I know their names. Some of them I know what happened to. Very little about his mother. Um, Almost nothing about his father. And I don't know what happened to a lot of them. And I think it's because there was just a natural disconnect that took place. When you are born into an enslaved family and you as a child are removed, he was removed from his family when he was eight. When you're removed that young and you have no sense or connection, and it's just naturally so, you think this is normal, that as a young child I'm going to be removed, I'm going to be off on my own, I may never see my family again, but this is normal and it's okay. Then what do you think that does, especially to black men and women in current society? Because women at that time were used to, very much used to, the fact that they if they married, and they did marry, but if they married, their husband was subject to be gone at any given time, and they were going to be left raising their children as best they could. Often when slaves were attempting to escape or when they were escaping, it was the men who escaped, and they would go off with plans that they would then send back for the women and the children, but they were the first to escape. So it was very rare for women and children to just escape on their own. So what happened? Well, the men went off, the women stayed behind, they were strong, they raised the children by themselves. Take that, overlay it to today. Yes. Is anybody surprised? No, I'm not surprised. Stephanie, let me say, uh, you just articulated what I've, I've actually written I'm I'm a um, poet is what I do. I I mean, I'm a writer. You know, I I write narrative stories uh, from the past, and you know, I'm also a blogger. And but my my favorite thing to do is is to write poetry. And I I wrote a piece called Fatherless by Design, and everything that you just articulated is, is in this little short piece. And the reason why I wrote it is because Bill O'Reilly. Was on the uh, was was on his show, and he had Al Sharpton on. And he says to Al Sharpton 
in this uh, very flippant manner, condescending. He says, well, Al, it seems the biggest problem facing your people is that 70% of the households don't have fathers in them. And when he said it, it just rubbed me the wrong way. Stephanie says, oh, it was just like, it was like sandpaper on my soul. So the first thing I would have responded was, well, are you, are you saying that black people are genetically predisposed not to want to be fathers? Or is it something in the system? But anyway, I wrote this short piece to your point, and I, I hope you enjoyed it. It's very short. It's called Fatherless by Design. It was by no means accident. The whole slavery Jim Crow incident was designed to keep black families apart. Because as long as we're divided, someone else will always decide it, and we're left behind before we even start. Now, let's look at the implications and results in situations of having no father around. With no model or instruction, you're left to your own destruction. With no guidance, you rarely get off the ground. Now, being fatherless by design, black boys are left behind. We are role model and mentor depleted. And with no pattern for our minds and no way to interpret signs, we start the game mentally defeated. With no father to teach you truth and no blueprint advising youth, the result is exactly what's expected, and that's hurting people, hurting people, with generation after generation neglected. Now, having very few examples and seldom seeing samples, it's a miracle we still exist at all. Yet a testament to our resolve that we will this problem solve and proof we rise each time we fall. Yes, we have been fatherless by design, but now has come the time for black people to wake up across this nation. It's time to take the reins of our future once again and design ourselves a better situation. So man up, my brother, and be a good father. Very nice, Ty. Very nice. I love that. I love that. Yeah, so, I mean, but you just articulated, you summed up the poem before. I was like, oh, my God, she just said, because, and and the level of apathy, look, look, there's another thing that I do this thing in churches, and, um, and and um, it's it's called the the, the um, fifth commandment consequence. And the reason I call it the fifth commandment consequence is simply because there is a consequence. You just delineated all of them um, just a minute ago to not honoring your father and your mother. You know, uh-huh. not honoring, not not paying attention, not paying attention to who Oliver Gilbert was does not allow you all of the uh, inheritance that comes from being Oliver Gilbert's great-great-granddaughter. But that's true. Right. So, that's and, right. And, and, and uh, you know, I was saying the same thing, and it's very, it's very important that we know who we are and where we came from because there's so much richness, and there's so much that we can inherit on the on the positive side of the fifth commandment consequence, uh, you know, just by so well, that that, that is the other piece. I mean, that I'm glad you mentioned that because th- that's the other consequence of 
learning and understanding your history. Because I, I really honestly believe that the more you study and actually learn about not only black history in general, back to slavery, but the more about your own personal history as well, that you you don't del I think you don't dwell as much on the painful piece because you will find so many examples to be proud of. Yes. The more yes. you study and understand it. I mean people think and I, I've heard my family say this, you know, time and time again that oh people didn't really you know, I say to my family, how come nobody ever talked about this? Why did I have to do the research? And then people would say, oh, yeah, I heard, you know, yeah, he was. And and I said, well, how come, you know, how come I didn't hear about this my entire life? This is huge. Why didn't anybody talk about it? And they said, well, because slavery isn't something that people talked about in families. It was you were, you just put, you closed the curtain on it and, you know, once we reached the point that we were free, people didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. But if yeah. you do talk about it and you understand it, what you find is that overcoming, to me, overcoming those situations is so much more powerful than simply yeah. being born free and kind of cruising along and saying, well, I was free and my father was free and his father was free and everybody was free and we're good. Yeah. Well, right. I don't really see any greatness in that. I mean, so where's the, where did you overcome any adversity? To me, overcoming yeah. the adversity is the big, you know, the big yeah. kudos. That's the big thing to be excited about. The rest of it is just boring. So... I think Quarles pointed that out in his book, or at least he made references to the schism between those who were free and those who were enslaved. Um, I think you're both on target with that. I think um, I've talked about that internalized oppression before. Um, You see a lot of that in the black community right now, where a certain segment of the people have internalized and wear the badge of slavery and don't really want to wear that badge. Mm-hmm. And those mm-hmm. who are in the so-called civil rights movement, um, which some people say was a revolution of the middle class, they kind of left the masses stranded, which mm-hmm. probably increased that internalized oppression. And people began to believe the lies told about them uh, and believe that there are white folk and black folk who really don't give a damn about them. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think well, you're look, both. Let me, just, let, me, let me just jump in and say this. We only have like a, a couple of minutes left. And I wanted to ask you, um, we're, 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 we're on the um, Just a Freedom show, and we have the pleasure of having uh, Preston Washington, who is the co-host on a regular basis. But um, it is our esteemed pleasure to have Stephanie Gilbert on the line. And I would just like to ask, uh, are there anything? Is there anything that you're doing in the community? Um, um, uh, do, is, are there any books? You have a website. Do you want people to get in touch with you? Just what's going on with you? Okay. Well, are you asking myself or Preston? Well, I, I was asking you because Preston is with us regularly, and I wanted okay. to just make sure that the, the listeners. Uh, got a way of getting in touch with you, or if you had any, you know, any way, any way we can reach out to you. Yes, absolutely. So, 
the good news is that I did just launch a, a website for Oliver, which um, is should be up in the next couple of days. It's www.ocgilbert.com. Gilbert, okay. And that and that website will track all of the research that I'm doing, all of the engagements, um, everything that surrounds. The, um, the the memoir, the narrative, Oliver's narrative, which will be posted on the website in full, by the way, so everybody can read his original words, and then all of the um, associated research that goes with that. And if anyone needs to reach me by phone, you can reach me at area code 215-519-1113. Uh, but I think we're ready now. So if we can get queued up, we'll go into... Uh, the Black Abolitionist by Benjamin Quarles. Love Talk Radio. Black Abolitionist by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 3, Side 1. Government demanded the return of the mutineers who were committed to prison pending trial for piracy. Coming to their assistance, a group of abolitionists headed by Lewis Tappan, Joshua Levitt, and Simeon S. Jocelyn formed the Amistad Committee. Dedicated to the defense, support, and education of the Mendians, the committee secured legal aid to fight their case in the federal courts. A portion of the funds raised came from Negro groups. Two of the self-improvement societies in New York, the Philomathian and the Phoenixian, sent $84, the proceeds of a jointly sponsored concert. A benefit in Cincinnati at the Colored Baptist Church raised $50, which a local weekly considered remarkable in view of the hard times. To raise money, the Amistad Committee sold pictures of Sink at a dollar apiece. The picture was a replica of a portrait by Nathaniel Jocelyn of New Haven, gifted brother of S.S. Jocelyn, whose services had been commissioned by Robert Purvis. The original created a problem for the Artist Fund Society of Philadelphia, to whom Purvis had sent it upon the request of a member. The Hanging Committee, however, decided against exhibiting the portrait on the grounds that to do so would be injurious to the society's wheel in light of the excitement of the times. In March 1841, after 18 months of effort, the Amistad Committee was elated when the Supreme Court declared the Mendians to be free, dismissing them from the custody of the court. The committee, along with other abolitionists, gave much of the credit to John Quincy Adams, who had been persuaded to become senior counsel in the final stages of the case. The hundreds of letters of thanks that were sent to him included one, dated March 30, 1841, from a Negro group in Columbus, Ohio, a man who had received countless expressions of approbation over a long public career that included a term in the White House, Adams sent a gracious reply to the black correspondents from Columbus. I never received from any body of men a vote of thanks more grateful to my feelings than yours. The Amistad Committee had one final task, to raise money to get the Mendians back to their homelands. As in the case of the Defense Fund, some of the contributors were Negroes. Like other abolitionists, they responded wholeheartedly to the Mendian mission, inasmuch as they regarded it as the one mission that was free of the taint of the American Colonization Society. 
In New York in May 1841, fundraising meetings were held at two colored churches. In Philadelphia, four predominantly Negro meetings were held in July, from which $400 was realized clear of expenses. Organized by Lewis Tappan, a 12-day series of meetings was held in New England, mostly in Negro churches, and $1,000 was raised. Invariably, the great attraction at these meetings was a contingent of the Mendians themselves, some of whom had learned enough English to sing a hymn or read a passage of Scripture. In late November 1841, the remaining 35 Mendians sailed from New York on the bark gentlemen, bound for Sierra Leone, not far from their home. They were accompanied by three missionaries and two teachers, both of the latter being Negroes, Henry R. Wilson of Barbados and James Wilson. The work of the Amistad Committee had been brought to a successful close. Its supporters thereupon formed themselves into a new group, the Mendy Committee, pledged to send assistance to the departed Africans. The new committee found that its work was paralleled by the Union Missionary Society, an organization founded at Hartford on August 18, 1841, by Negroes. Attending the meeting were 43 delegates from five states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, and Pennsylvania, plus five spectators from the Amistad crew. While denouncing the colonization scheme, the delegates felt that Negro Americans should share in the movement to carry the Christian gospel to Africa. Forming the Union Missionary Society, with headquarters to be located in New York, and with white membership to be welcome, they named J.W. Pennington as president, Amos G. Beeman as secretary, and Theodore S. Wright as treasurer. The next step was enlisting the support of the ubiquitous Lewis Tappan. To the delight of the solicitors, Tappan showed a keen interest and, in typical fashion, soon became a dominant figure in the organization. Since he played a similar role in the Mendy Committee, a merger was inevitable. At Albany in 1846, the Mendy Committee, the Union Missionary Society, and two equally short-lived groups, the Western Evangelical Missionary Association and the Committee for West India Missions, transferred their funds to the newly formed American Missionary Association and disbanded. At this inaugural meeting of the AMA, Pennington and Wright were present. Wright and Samuel Ringgold Ward were named as two of the five vice presidents, and on the 12-man executive committee, four Negroes were placed, Wright, Pennington, Ray, and Cornish. Although a mission society, the AMA was abolition-oriented inasmuch as it considered slavery as one of the most heinous of sins. Its membership was open to anyone who is not a slaveholder or in the practice of other immoralities. It had no denominational or ecclesiastical ties, but its leadership was predominantly congregationalist, and it was generally thought to be the secular arm of that church. It operated foreign and home missions, the latter quite feebly supported until the mid-fifties. It had one Negro in the foreign field, Mrs. Mary Shad Carey in Canada, assigned to promote better schools. Of the 263 who were home missionaries before the Civil War, seven were Negroes. The Negro appointees of the AMA, like the whites, were largely settled pastors, whose congregations were too small or too poor to pay them adequately. 
and who were therefore glad to get two hundred or three hundred dollars a year as a city missionary. Quite exceptional was a man like Samuel E. Cornish, who, since he enjoyed a competence, could volunteer his services free of charge. But other appointees, among them Ward, Charles B. Ray, Germain W. Loguen, Henry Highland Garnett, and Amos G. Beeman, were in no position to decline payment for their services. Some of the home missionaries had money-raising responsibilities. Among these was the younger Beeman, who held public meetings, generally prefacing his financial requests with a lecture on such topics as the origin and history of the African race and what the colored people can, under God, do for themselves. The collections over one period of five months were meager, Beeman amassing a total of $70. The other Negro appointees of the AMA were city missionaries who busied themselves in Sunday school work distributed tracts in the streets, reclaimed the outcasts, visited the sick and shut-ins, and attended funerals. The domestic program of the AMA was not to be measured by its works alone, particularly its heroic but aborted efforts in Kentucky and North Carolina. By its outspoken hostility to slavery, the AMA furnished an example of a church-oriented group that did not evade or palliate a social and moral problem of the first magnitude. Other denominations, too, had their coteries of concerned churchmen. The American Baptist Free Mission Society, established in 1843, was anti-slavery in outlook and activity. Among the Methodist clergy, there were dedicated abolitionists like Orange Scott, who in 1840 called a convention which formed the American Wesleyan Anti-Slavery Society and who three years later led a Scottite secession from the Methodist Episcopal Church. In 1854, the Brooklyn Presbytery elected a Negro, A.N. Freeman, of Siloam Church as moderator. The Third Presbytery of New York voted this office to Theodore S. Wright in 1845 and to J.W.C. Pennington eight years later. In spite of this honor, Pennington, in his sermon to the Presbytery, felt it necessary to express his keen regret as to the indifference of our general body on the slavery issue. An attempt at establishing an interdenominational society was made at Cincinnati in 1850 with the calling of a Christian anti-slavery convention. With Lewis Woodson and John B. Vachon among the participants of record, the some 2,000 delegates adopted 17 forthright resolutions to the general effect that slavery contravened the laws of God and the gospel of Christ. But there was no follow-up, and the effort came to little. The anti-slavery views of individual clergymen and congregations did give an increasing moral tone to the crusade. Moreover, the hostility to slavery among churchmen was a factor in the breakup within three of the major denominations. The divisive question of human bondage was an issue, however soft-pedaled, in the split in the Presbyterians' ranks in 1837 between the old school and the new school. Differing viewpoints on slavery was the key factor in the disruption of and final split in the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1844, and it led in the following year to a similar break between Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists. 
But even in the North, the church on the whole, reflecting the great majority of individual congregations, preferred to deal gently with slavery in order to preserve harmony on an issue that often brought about disruption. The Negro church had no such squeamishness about bearing witness against slavery. The Negro church had its weaknesses. Its services tended to be emotional with an abundance of rousement, and many of its preachers were men of little formal training, and hence given to substituting sound for sense. However, Negro churches generally conveyed a sense of sincerity, a quality which led such abolitionists as William Goodell and Joshua Levitt to attend them frequently. But from the viewpoint of social reform, the distinguishing mark of the Negro church was its independence from white control. Its money came from Negroes. Hence, it could speak out on such an issue as slavery without fear of losing members or offending someone in the South. Negro churches formally went on record as opposing slavery. The Zion Methodists, at their annual meeting in New York in 1852, declared it to be the duty of all Christian clergymen to denounce slavery at all places and under all circumstances. At its annual meeting in 1853 at New Bedford, the American Baptist Missionary Society, representing 26 congregations, strongly condemned slavery after the introductory sermon by former runaway Leonard A. Grimes. The 1859 meeting of the Evangelical Association of Colored Ministers of Congregational and Presbyterian Churches dwelt upon the iniquity of slavery. From 1816, the year of its founding, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, in its Book of Discipline, denied membership to slaveholders. Writing in 1856, Jabez Campbell, a spokesman for the denomination, claimed its priority over all others in being the most free from the evils of slavery. It is to be noted, however, that at the General Conference, which was held that year at Cincinnati, the delegates spent two days arguing whether to adopt a strongly worded resolution against slavery, one which called it the greatest of all crimes and the highest violation of God's law. Delegates who labored below the Mason-Dixon favored a more mildly phrased disapproval of slavery, one of them pointing out that those who spoke so loudly in Cincinnati would likely lapse into silence if they were located 200 miles to the south. Impressed by this viewpoint, the large majority voted to adopt softer tone on slavery. Officially, therefore, the African Methodist Episcopal Church might be termed emancipationist rather than abolitionist. But in actuality, most northern congregations and their pastors made no effort to conceal their decidedly anti-slavery sentiments. Church buildings owned by Negroes were commonly put to use for abolitionist meetings. When, in 1837, the New York Committee of Vigilance had difficulty in getting a public hall for its meetings, the Ashbury Street Church came forward with an offer of its facilities. In early August 1847, the Colored Church in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, turned its Sunday services over to William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. Bethel Church in Philadelphia, with Bishop Daniel Payne presiding, was host to Garrison at a reception in December 1852. 
Francis Allen Watkins, having trouble in hiring a hall at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, in 1857, wrote reassuringly to fellow abolitionist J. Miller McKim, I can get the colored church. In 1841, Parker Pillsbury could find no place in Salem, Massachusetts to hold an abolitionist meeting except at the colored Bethel Church. Unpopular for his outspokenness, Parker was coolly received in white Salem, but he praised his Bethel hosts, characterizing them as noble, manly, womanly, brave, and heroic to the last degree. Generally, the black churches asked no fees for permission to use their quarters. Hence, Frederick Douglass expressed a hurt surprise when the trustees of the Zion Methodist Church in New York asked him for $13 following an anti-slavery meeting he had conducted in their building. Douglass contrasted their behavior with that of pastors J. N. Gloucester of Brooklyn and E. P. Rogers of Newark, at whose churches he had recently spoken free of charge. And, of course, there were a handful of colored churches, three of them happening to be in Philadelphia, where anti-slavery meetings were not held. Of these, the oldest and most socially prestigious was St. Thomas's Protestant Episcopal Church, with its fine organ and its carpeted aisles. Its pastor, the unruffled William Douglas, ignored the angry blast from his namesake, Frederick Douglas, characterizing it as a corrupt, old, pro-slavery hag. Many Negro churches held periodic prayer meetings for the slaves, commonly once a month. Sometimes a congregation would raise money to purchase a slave or the family of a former slave. Frederica Bremer visited a Methodist church in Washington in July 1850, where a slave member faced the bleak prospect of being sold down south and thus separated from his wife and child. A pewter platter, she wrote, was set upon a stool in the church, and one silver piece after another joyfully rang upon it. In their greetings of welcome to visitors at Sunday services, many preachers made it a point to include runaway slaves, their presence imparting a joyful earnestness to the proceedings. More than one Negro church was a station on the Underground Railroad, its alcove a sanctuary for runaways. Fugitives were housed in the basement of Cincinnati's Zion Baptist Church, the number sometimes rising to 14. On one occasion, an infant who died was buried beneath the floor in order that the escaping party might not have to risk being seen by the hotly pursuing master. The Zion Methodist Church in Rochester was a station on the Underground Railroad. Quinn Chapel in Chicago, Bethel Methodist Mother Church of the Northwest, furnished a conspicuous example of providing accommodations for fugitives. And finally, it is to be noted that most of the prominent Negro clergymen, with only a few exceptions, preached a social gospel that stressed the church militant in a fellowship of concern. In deepening the abolitionist sentiment among Negroes, the role of their press can hardly be overestimated. Often the key to the success of a reform movement, the power of the press was certainly a vital factor in the anti-slavery crusade. The Negro press, even more than the Negro church, presented a united and consistent front against slavery and, as might be expected, a more single-minded attack than could be expected from the clerical quarter. 
The 17 Negro newspapers published before the Civil War struck one note in common, that of freedom. And this included the temperance periodical Northern Star and Freeman's Advocate. Its title, like that of the first two Negro weeklies, Freedom's Journal, and its successor, The Rights of All, clearly indicate an abolitionist outlook. To attack slavery in all its forms and aspects was invariably proclaimed as the chief object of a newly appearing Negro weekly. In makeup, the Negro journals were much like those put out by white reformers. They consisted of four pages of six columns each, with seldom a photograph or drawing to relieve the eye or spur the attention. The first page was generally devoted to a long lead article, often a speech or sermon, sometimes from a pro-slavery source. The back page consisted of canned filler material, often remote from reformist activities, a serialized story, a travelogue, an at-home-with-some-literary-celebrity, or an essay on nature. The two middle pages contained editorials, reports of meetings, notices of activities to come, letters to the editor, and stories relating to the cause. The last-named were often copied, abolitionist sheets feeding heavily on one another. Negro newspapers carried advertisements of anti-slavery books, particularly slave narratives, including that of Gustavus Vassa, who after becoming free had devoted his career to abolitionist work in England. The attack on slavery by Negro journals took many literary forms, among them the catechistic and poetical. What is slavery? It is the wicked act of the stranger by which he takes the image of God and reduces it to a thing, a chattel, wrote the colored American. What is abolition? It is that light which cometh from above, from the Father of light, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. The poetry appearing in the Negro journals tended to be simple in theme if stilted in style, such as the opening stanza of The Things I Love. I love to welcome toil and pain, earth's cruel frowns and bitter bread, that not a man may wear a chain when I am dead. For all their similarity with white reformist journals, the Negro papers often addressed themselves to matters peculiarly their own. Their correspondence often struck a note of racial pride and distinctiveness. I thank our father, wrote Junius C. Morell, that it has pleased him in his wisdom to order our color just as he has. J. McCune Smith expressed his gratification that the gifted Elizabeth Greenfield had not tried to pass as an Indian or Moor, but had stood proudly forth on the concert stage as a black woman, pure and simple. There is one thing our people must learn, he lectured. We must learn to love, respect, and glory in our Negro nature. In the columns of their newspapers, Negroes debated as to what name was best for their group. The editor of the Colored American expressed his displeasure at some of the designations then current. We are written about, preached to, and prayed for as Negroes, Africans, and blacks, all of which have been stereotyped as terms of reproach, and on that account, if no other, are unacceptable. Not surprisingly, this editor concluded that the name Colored American was the only one above reproach. But there were dissenting voices. At a meeting of Negro leaders later that year, the word colored was criticized as being vague and inappropriate. 
When James G. Burney was asked in 1838 about the financial status of the abolitionist societies, he replied, We are always in debt and always getting out of debt. Burney's opening words were tersely descriptive of the financial history of Negro newspapers. His closing phrase, less so. Negro weeklies, like abolitionist periodicals, generally operated at a loss, without a single exception. As a rule, abolitionist sheets, white or colored, were short-lived. Negro newspapers did not pass away without putting up a battle. The colored American employed agents, among them W.S. Jennings of Boston, who in February 1837 distributed 500 copies of its prospectus and obtained more than 20 subscriptions. Another early agent walked 26 miles through rain and snow to pick up five subscribers. Lewis Woodson proposed giving the new weekly a needed boost by heading a group of 100 donors who would give $5 apiece and another group of 50 donors who would give $10 apiece. Later that year, Theodore S. Wright of New York sent 13 subscriptions. Subsequently, the paper employed as its agents Alexander Crummel, John Malvin of Cleveland, and the influential clergyman Charles B. Ray. In the summer of 1839, Ray announced a subscription meeting at Albany which would feature the last public appearance of the popular figure Nathaniel Paul, pastor of the Union Street Baptist Church. Other Negro-run newspapers received pledges of support, including David Ruggles' The Mirror of Liberty, whose appearance was hailed by groups in New York, Boston, and Hartford. But in receiving financial support, no Negro reformist journal matched those edited by Douglas, the North Star, and later Frederick Douglass Weekly. Aside from substantial aid from whites, Douglas tapped a variety of black sources. Negro women's groups like the Colored Ladies of Philadelphia held bazaars in support of his paper. At colored conventions, the delegates voted that it be supported, and at public meetings from New Haven to San Francisco, collections were taken up for it. Douglas' papers commanded the unpaid services of half a dozen local correspondents, among them such forceful writers as William J. Wilson of Brooklyn and J. McCune Smith. But despite the most heroic efforts and the expending of more than $12,000 of his own money over an eight-year period, Douglas was forced to terminate his journal in July 1860. The immediate cause of the suspension was delinquent subscribers, a familiar complaint in Negro journalism. Pay us what you owe us, ran the title of an editorial in a colored weekly. Will friend Gloucester please to transmit us some money, begged another publisher. We hope our Philadelphia patrons will be punctual in paying. The editor of The Impartial Citizen observed that many Negroes took the paper on credit for two or three years and then stopped it without paying up arrearages. Doubtless some of these delinquent subscribers were well-intentioned optimists who simply never were able to get enough money. John B. Russworm, the pioneer editor, attributed the poverty of his subscribers to their failure to pay. Delinquent subscribers compounded the other problems of the antebellum Negro newspapers. With possible three exceptions, Freedom's Journal, The Colored American, and The North Star, they started with little or no capital, thus leaving themselves vulnerable to sudden death while still a-borning. 
unscrupulous operators sometimes posed as agents, pocketing the money for subscriptions. In the fall of 1838, the colored American warned its readers in Ohio and Michigan about one Skipworth, who was soliciting funds in its name but without any authorization other than his own. William Still sent a letter of sympathy to Mary Ann Shad of the Provincial Freeman to express his scorn for anyone who would lend himself to the base task of swindling the publisher of an anti-slavery paper. Agents, legitimate or otherwise, had problems in getting an audience. Often they had to work through local preachers and church trustee boards in order to get a meeting place and an audience. Hoping to improve things, Charles B. Ray wrote an article that appeared in the August 12, 1837 issue of The Colored American and bore the direct, if lengthy, title, Needless Difficulties to be Encountered by an Agent. And, of course, once an agent had access to an audience, the results were often disappointing. At one time or another, an agent for a Negro periodical was sure to express some bitterness at the want of interest in the abolitionist cause. William Still, Philadelphia-based agent of the Provincial Freeman, complained in 1858 that of the city's 30,000 Negroes, only 400 supported abolitionist newspapers. For the venturesome who published a Negro reformist newspaper, there was no escaping the problem of debit and credit. But the work had its satisfactions, its supporters rightly concluding that their role in the abolitionist movement was not to be despised. Aside from furnishing a vehicle for self-expression, these newspapers furnished an outlet for the frustrations of the Negro and his blueprints for a new relationship between white and black Americans. Negro newspapers, without exception, were not designed to circulate among Negroes alone. Their publishers hoped to attract white readers, thus furnishing an evidence of Negro abilities as well as an exposure to his viewpoints. And in truth, a white reader could hardly have picked up a copy of a paper like the North Star without some initial surprise at its format and content. It was, as the Oberlin evangelist pointed out, surpassed by only a very few in the large catalog of our anti-slavery exchange. And readers could not fail to note that Negro newspapers, whether well or poorly edited, had one thing in common. Alike, they sounded insistently the two notes which gave to the land of their birth its distinctive cry, freedom and equality. Chapter 5 the users of adversity. The elevation of the free man is inseparable from and lies at the very threshold of the great work of the slave's restoration to freedom. A call for a National Convention of Colored Americans, 1855. Four young Negroes, all of them students at Noyes Academy in Canaan, New Hampshire, were listed as the featured speakers to appear at the public meeting of the New Hampshire Anti-Slavery Society on Independence Day, 1835, in a city, Plymouth, which itself bore a historic name. Taking place as scheduled at the Congregational Church, the meeting began in the early afternoon with 19-year-old Henry Highland Garnet. He walked with a limp, and he was dark of skin, of full, unmitigated, unalleviated, and unpardonable blackness wrote an eyewitness. His 20-minute speech was characterized by pathos and beauty. Next came Alexander Cromwell, 
three years younger than Garnet, but of like complexion, as sable as Toussaint. A boy in years only, Cromwell was listened to with deep attention, though doubtless his remarks were unembellished by the parade of references to English literary figures that characterized his later style. The third speaker was orphan Thomas S. Sidney, a graceful orator whose remarks were doubtless less barbed than those of his predecessors. The fourth scheduled participant, Thomas Paul of Boston, put in an appearance but did not speak due to a domestic affliction. The audience was disappointed, but hardly felt cheated after Garnet, Crummel, and Sidney. Indeed, the writer and editor, N.P. Rogers, relates that his elation almost moved him to propose a resolution that would surely have passed unanimously, that colored people have bona fide talent enough to be free. The belief that the cause of abolition would be advanced by evidence of the progress of the free Negro was widespread among reformers, white and black. In 1824, in a farewell address to Baltimore Negroes to be read in their churches, Elisha Tyson, a longtime patron and friend, warned them that any misconduct on their part would give credence to the belief that they were unworthy of freedom. George Thompson, the English abolitionist, told a Negro audience assembled at the Abyssinian Church in Portland in October 1834 that if they conducted themselves blamelessly, there would be an effect on slave emancipation. The Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women, meeting in New York in May 1837, spoke in similar accents. Nothing will contribute more to break the bondman's fetters than an example of high moral worth, intellectual culture, and religious attainments among the free people of color. The organizational meeting of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, meeting in Harrisburg earlier in 1837, issued an address to Negroes informing them that as they gained wealth and respectability, their example would help to undermine slavery. Negro leaders needed no convincing that they and their followers should seize every opportunity to demonstrate the capacity for freedom and its responsibilities. Can slaves, if liberated, take care of themselves? What better way to answer this commonly raised question than to point to a free Negro of good habits and steady behavior? Any other kind of Negro was a liability to the abolitionist crusade. If we are lazy and idle, exhorted Richard Allen, the enemies of freedom plead it as a cause why we ought not to be free. J. McCune Smith warned against the seductions of the city, such as policy gambling, porterhouses with their billiards and cards, women hastening through the streets with their bonnets untied, men hanging around the corner or gutter tumbling. Negro groups, like Negro individuals, took the viewpoint that the elevation of the free colored American and the liberation of the slave were very much interrelated. The Negro-controlled Ohio State Anti-Slavery Society, at its meeting in Cleveland in January 1853, viewed slave emancipation and free Negro elevation as simply opposite sides of the same coin. At a meeting of the National Council of Colored People in New York in May 1855, the 20 delegates agreed that the improvement of the free Negro in the North was an effective means of promoting emancipation in the South. Five months later, at Franklin Hall, Philadelphia, the Colored National Convention passed a resolution which summed up the point. In our elevation lies the freedom of our enslaved brethren. 
In that elevation is centered the germ of our own high destiny and the best well-being of the whole people. Here and there, as might be expected, dissenting voices might be heard. The Negro's self-improvement would not gain him any privileges, asserted the national reformer. If a Negro could write like Paul, preach like Peter, and pray like a manadab, the voice of prejudice would still cry out that he was black. Hence, as the national reformer viewed it, the elevation of the Negro depended less upon his abilities than upon the improvement of the white man's heart. Since the abolitionists spent the great bulk of their thin resources on the slave, the twin work of uplifting the free Negroes devolved upon themselves. Self-improvement efforts took many forms, among them the promotion of temperance, mutual aid programs, literary and cultural strivings, and better schools. The temperance cause ran head-on into a commonly accepted practice in early 19th century America, the daily use of liquor. But among Negroes, the temperance movement faced the additional difficulty of dealing with a class of people, most of whom were poor and therefore likely to turn to drink as an anodyne, an escape. Sensing this popular appeal of the bottle, Negro leaders invariably linked abstinence with abolition, holding that to keep sober was to strike a blow at slavery. Among Negroes, as among whites, a supporter of abolition was likely to be a supporter of temperance. Again and again, Negro reformers declared that the free colored man owed it to his brother in chains to join the Cold Water Army. Germaine W. Loguen did not see much difference in making a man a slave to rum and in making him a slave to a fellow man. William Whipper condemned liquor for its murderous effect on Africa, inducing its peoples to sell their brothers. Jacob C. White in an address to the Banneker Institute of Philadelphia in 1854, denounced rum as the ruin of the young, the very class of our peoples to whom we are to look as the warriors who are to fight for our liberty. Negro leaders were in full accord with the abolitionist editor who asserted that drunkenness and pro-slavery always went together, whereas anti-slavery, without exception, was totally abstinent. Drinking and slavery, in the eyes of Negro reformers, were twin symbols of the moral decay of the times. The temperance impulse had deep roots among Negroes, going back to 1788, when the Free African Society of Philadelphia denied membership to anyone with the drinking habit. At every one of the National Negro Conventions from their beginning in 1830, the delegates arrayed themselves against the use of liquor. At the second annual convention, they passed a resolution authorizing the formation of a society on the principle of entire abstinence from the use of ardent spirits. This adjunct, the Colored American Conventional Temperance Society, had a mushroom growth, reporting 23 branches in 18 cities within a year's time. Again in 1834, the National Convention earnestly recommended the principles of total abstinence. The American Moral Reform Society, organized at the 5th Annual National Convention at Philadelphia in 1835, announced that the promotion of temperance was one of their goals. No one who sold ardent spirits could be a member of the society, which urged the young men of the land to abstain from every fluid that had a tendency in the least degree to intoxicate.
This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette.